This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. This is Jason Roundsville. I'm joined today with my co-host, Dylan Ray, and we have a man that is uh we're super excited to have on and a man that needs absolutely no introduction we have chuck adams with us today and chuck welcome to the show thank you i'm happy to be here this is uh dylan i have done i'm not sure we've got to be pushing 40 or 50 of these so far and we've had some pretty big names on here but i've got to tell you this is the one that we both were a little bit uh a little bit anxious for it. We're like, oh my gosh, we're talking with Chuck Adams. This is crazy. So we appreciate you being here. My pleasure, believe me. Yeah. Now I, I'm gonna go go right back and say what tell us about your first what I mean, you're an icon in the bow hunting world, an, an absolute icon. And so what was it originally that that brought you to bow hunting that made you pick up a bow and say, Hey, this is, this is where it's at for me. Well, Jason and I grew up in a hunting family. Both my grandfathers uh, were gun hunters. My dad was a gun hunter and I grew up in California where if I was really lucky, I had two deer tags a year. So as a young man, uh, I, I was able to start deer hunting with a gun when I was 12 years old um, as a young man. Uh, I would dream about hunting deer all year long, and my grandfathers and my dad knew some great spots, and it was over too quickly for me. And I quickly realized that 
I wanted to hunt more and kill less uh, when I only had one or two deer tags a year. So the very next year when I was 13, I bought an old Ben Pearson Hunter recurbo at the local hardware store and started shooting Herger's aluminum arrows. And uh, I loved it. And uh, took me three years to shoot my first deer with a bow in California. Uh, but I never looked back. And to this day, wow. I'm the only bow hunter in my family. My dad was a gun nut. Really? And uh, he's been gone a few years now. But uh, uh, I tried to get him to bow hunt. And he told me, finally, he said, I don't want to run the risk of not having a gun tag in California. So I'm not going to try bow hunting anymore. But uh, bow hunting was it for me after that. Wow. And, and I mean, I, just for me, I can remember back, I wish I could find it and, um, the, it's possible. I may actually still have that magazine somewhere, but I, I remember years ago there was a, and I don't remember what magazine was in, was in, but one of the major outdoor publications, and here's a picture of you with your bow and you had four or five mule deer, you know, mounts behind you. And at that point in time, I mean, the smallest of those deer was bigger than anything, you know, I haven't hunted since I was in deer camp at a month old. I was born in August and September, I was in deer camp. So, I mean, I've been around this a long time. The smallest buck you had in that picture was bigger than anything I'd ever even seen. I mean, even the ones you see running 300 yards over the hill, just so I, that going, going way back, that was I mean, just truly one of those iconic pictures I can still see, you know, even decades later. So it's, um, I mean, you're obviously you had success with a bow, you know, took you two years to get the first one. How long until, when were you at that point where you started saying, Hey, I have a real shot at getting these true giants. Well, like most folks, uh, Jason, I started out, just hoping I would see an arrow go into an animal. And for a while, I didn't think that ever was going to happen. And California, where I started, uh, the little black-tailed deer uh, were really difficult. Uh, the, the success rate for bow hunters when I started was about 3%, believe huh. it or not. And it's not much bigger, higher now than that. But I started out shooting the first legal forkhorn buck I could get. And... Um, uh, I just progressed like like most bow hunters who like trophies. Uh, it was all about the challenge for me. And after a while, I thought it's the same the same thread that I mentioned a while back. I wanted to hunt more and kill less. And so once I felt I was adept at shooting the smaller animals, I started passing up smaller animals. So I still had my tag in my pocket and I could hunt some more. Yeah. And I, I suppose the first... Pope and young deer I ever shot was uh, in my early 20s uh, in California. And then I branched out and shot a nice moose in the 1970s in British Columbia, Canada. And uh, I just loved having that tag in my pocket for as long as I could. And that's the reason that I trophy hunt to this day. Wow. And that's, that's one of the fundamental differences. I have a good buddy of mine who he was actually... Dave Seaton, he exposed me to Pope and Young when we were in college years ago. And we have, 
we talk about that, the fundamental difference, like, like my highlight of my season is when I get to punch a tag and that's kind of, that's for him. He says, Oh, that's kind of a downer. He says it's a highlight, but it's also downer because now I'm done hunting for the season. So it's interesting that you bring that up. Well, there are a whole bunch of different reasons people uh, uh, hunt trophy animals. Some of them I consider to be the right reasons and some of them are very wrong reasons, but, uh, for me, it's always been the challenge and wanting to extend my season. And uh, I feel that's one of the right reasons to trophy hunt. Yeah, absolutely. And so what do you see out there where, where guys are doing it for the wrong reasons? What would you consider those to be? Well, I think it's the wrong reason to trophy hunt just to put an animal on the wall and brag about it later. Uh, I just don't uh, think that's a... a, a, a uh, ethical and, and, and moral way to do it, if that's your only reason, because that spawns illegality sometimes too. You know, people, if, if it's the critter on the wall that's the most important thing, some people, uh, I'm not saying a lot, but some people, uh, whatever they have to do to put that trophy on the wall so they can brag about it later. And uh, I just think that's, that's not the right reason to trophy hunt uh, animals with a bow and arrow. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that bothers me these days, to be honest, that I'm a real upbeat guy, but uh, sometimes I watch television shows and, and people are shooting these monstrous animals. And then I'll talk to a kid or maybe a, a somebody in their 40s or 50s and they'll kind of apologize for the 30 or 135 right. whitetail that they shot. Say, well, one of these days I'm going to shoot a big animal. And I'm thinking, any animal is a trophy animal with a bow. And uh, uh, don't think about big antlers as the end goal because uh, anything is big if you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I fell into that a little bit. I shot an elk, uh, I think it was last year, and, and you know, I, I didn't have a lot of time to hunt, and I was holding out for a branch bull. So I, I had an opportunity to branch bull, and I literally put a, made a really good shot and and so he's sitting there or he's standing there just at, at the end of his road and then out walks the big, you know, six point that we're all hoping for. And all, all of a sudden I started doubting myself. I was like, oh man, I just should have waited. And then I started getting down a little bit. And I'm like, you know what? There's been, you know, a lot of bow seasons. I would have loved to have just had a chance at a, at a branch bull, like what I just harvested. And so you have to, to kind of get that mentality put in the right department there's a place for it but i see that a lot on social media where people are like well he's not a giant but i'm like hey it's a trophy to me should be a trophy to you you know it all depends on the circumstance really uh i've written about it before but a few years ago uh i shot a tiny two by two mule deer right by my house here in wyoming and there aren't any really big bucks in my area they're hunted too hard uh it's more of a meat factory area and uh, uh i was excited that i was gutting that deer within sight of my uh office uh and i think i was just excited about that deer as i uh, ever have been uh, about one of the big mule deer you were talking about earlier uh, it all yeah. depends on the circumstance and it's all personal for me yeah it's i i had a hunt like that um, with a good buddy of mine and, and we just happened to be out 
and you know, here's a guy who killed some nice mule deer in Oregon, and and he went out and shot a fork and horn mule deer, just like what you're talking about. And he says, you know what? He says, that was a lot of fun because th- there just wasn't this huge amount of pressure. He says, you know, if I'd have missed or, you know, it was just, it was just fun to do and fun to, you know, like, like you say, have, have something on the meat pole. And pressure is a bad thing. I, I can honestly say I've never felt pressure bow hunting. Um, uh, I'm I'm not feeling like I have to shoot the big critter. I just want my tag in my pocket. And uh, I love Pope and Young because it gives guidelines uh, for uh, what is big and what is not so big. So if I have the luxury, I'll look through a spotting scope or my binoculars and size up each side of the rack and uh, uh, decide if that one's big enough for me. It, it gives me some ground rules. But... Uh, I'm not feeling any pressure uh, to shoot an animal so I can write another story or put it in Pope and Young. That's a, that's just the aftermath of having a great time for me. Yeah. So I, I, I've, I've heard a number. What is the number for how many you have in Pope and Young? Well, uh, Jason, I was uh, really happy last year, 2020, to break the 200 mark. <sighs> God. And I have 203 now. And oh my uh, God. I set a goal. At the, the late, great Jim Doherty was uh, president of the Pope and Young Club. I think it was for 16 years. And uh, for a number of years after I got in the industry, I didn't enter anything in the book. That was, that was not a priority for me. And Jim came to me one day and he said, how come you're not entering this stuff? You're writing about it. And I said, oh, it's just not that important to me. And he said, well, you really need to, so everybody else has something to compare with when they look in the record books. And I thought that makes a lot of sense. So I entered the, the few animals that I had that would make it at that point. And I set this personal goal. I said, I, I would like to shoot 200 Pope and Young animals in my lifetime. Wow. And that we're talking back in the 70s. Uh, and and uh, to be honest with you, again, it's just a strictly personal goal. I never told anybody about it uh, until right. I hit 200, but now I'm looking at 300. Right. I, don't, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but uh, uh, I'm a goal-oriented sort of guy, and, and that's my new personal goal. I think it's possible. Yeah. That's uh, so my goal is going to be three. I'm going to get three in there. So, you know what, Dylan, Dylan, that will make me exact. Like when, when Chuck gets to 300 and I get to three, that will make me exactly 1% as good as Chuck Adams. And you know what? In the bony world, I can live with that. Yeah. No, uh, they were telling me because I was sitting there working the computer and all these awards were given. So all these award winners had to walk right by me. And, uh, and, you know, I was saying, congratulations, congratulations. And finally, one guy said something back to me. And I said, well, you know, uh, when they start accepting fork and horn awards, then I might get an award. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When we, Hey, that's a category I might be able to dominate. No, I got to tell a story though. So, uh, you know, I, I really didn't know how much, uh, that you influenced my bow hunting journey, Chuck, until, uh, not too long ago, really, but my dad has always been a big Chuck Adams fan. And, uh, and he had a, you probably remember the year, but it was a Hoyt game getter. Um, I think it was probably like an 86, 88, somewhere right in there. And, uh, so when I started bow hunting, that's what he said, here's your bow, go shoot it. And, uh, so, you know, you're talking, I don't know, 2000 and 
10 and I'm shooting an 86 Hoyt. And, uh, but man, that was the, I just went out and flung arrows with it all the time. And, uh, and so I took it out and shot my first deer with it. And, uh, you know, I had no idea what, what was being sparked there. And it was all because of an old bow that my dad kept around because that's what Chuck Adams shot. And so, uh, the old Hoyt 86 game getter was my first bow that I, that I harvested an animal with. And I wasn't even alive in 86, but that was the first bow I used. That's cool. I started shooting the Hoyt game getter in uh, 1984, Dylan. There you go. Uh, and, uh, I, that was the first year I shot, shot, shot for Hoyt. And I love that bow. I've still got that bow on the wall here. Uh, all these many years later, you know, I, uh, I went back one time and it was probably a couple years ago, but I, uh, I got that bow out of the closet and I went to shoot it and I'm like, man, alive, you're pulling back, you know, 70 pounds, but it feels like you're holding 80 pounds back. And then it feels <laughs> like a gun going off in your hand. And I thought, man, alive, how far has technology come? Absolutely. I, that was a like a 45% let off bow that I was shooting yeah. back in the day. Uh, things have changed for sure. Absolutely, they have. But you could pick that bow up and uh, climb your to your tree stand and uh, drop a buck just like uh, people did uh, 35 years ago. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and you see that not only with, with archery, but with, with equipment all over the hunting spectrum you know decoys and and clothes and just because there's something new doesn't mean the old stuff wouldn't still work and it's uh i hear people talk about that all the time yeah uh, i think the animals still have the upper hand no matter what uh, your shooting equipment uh, uh gear gear is more dependable and uh obviously faster and more powerful and uh if you shoot a release aid and a, a short compound bow, you're going to be more accurate than than you used to be with fingers. But uh, the bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, is the critters still have the advantage. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's um, – I, I, for one, am very happy with some of the, you know, range finders and, and pins and things like that. Because when I started, I didn't have that. I shot a uh, – 80 pound golden eagle and when i started i didn't even have sights on that thing and it was before laser rangefinders and and it was a big guessing game and i shot the or the 2219 eastern arrows not because that was what was spined for me but because that was the heaviest toughest arrow you could get when you didn't have a lot of money you needed to be able to shoot that arrow after it bounced off a rock or a or a stump or something so that was uh i remember the arc of those things was just you know it was a pretty big arc back in the day for sure why well, I, I shot 2219s almost exclusively through the 1980s and into the early 90s and uh uh, again, that was a, a rugged shaft, and uh, it, it, if you hit something, it was going to go through it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were those were awesome shafts. Yeah, I just remember it was tough, and a lot of guys were switching to the the bigger diameter, thinner wall. But man, you couldn't bounce those off a rock. So no, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your first arrow, Dylan? Whatever metal arrows was with that uh, was with that eighty four okay. game getter. Um, they were some kind of Eastons. I remember that um, because at that age I was still playing, you know, baseball, and I thought, well, hey, it's not a baseball brand. Um, and so I remember they were Eastons, but whatever kind of, you know, they were still the camo metal aluminum arrows. So whatever they were, yeah. 
My first uh, Lubin Merrills were the old East and 24 SRTX. Uh, they didn't have uh, uh, anodizing at that time. So every time you pull them out of the target, you get black on your hands uh, from the really? oxidation. And uh, so I set up a little spinning tool and sprayed mine with zinc chromate green primer so, for two reasons, better camouflage and uh, I wouldn't get my hands black all the there time. There you go. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually. I'm glad that now they come where I don't have to spray paint my own arrows. I think I'm a fan of that. Absolutely. Yeah. When they came out with hard anodizing uh, back in the late '80s, uh, it changed everything. You may recall the soft anodizing would wear off in the target after a while too. And uh, okay. uh, so uh, now, I mean, everything gets better and better. But that's yeah. the bottom line. Yeah. And so are you now, are you strictly traditional or do you use a compound as well? Or what's your, what's your choice now? I've been shooting a compound for many years. Uh, okay. Uh, I, when I, when I started my career with Peterson's hunting magazine in LA, uh, uh, back in the seventies, Tom Jennings was just a few miles down the road, uh, so I visited the Jennings factory. He set me up with uh, one of his old wood handle uh, compound bows. And uh, I, I I checked the other day. I own a, about 30 uh, recurves of longbows. And that's how I started. Uh, but um, uh, I, I still prefer finger shooting. I hunted with a release aid last year. Uh, and, and there's nothing as accurate as a release aid. But I like the simplicity of fingers. So I uh, shot fingers with a recurve, and then I've been shooting fingers with a compound for many, many years. Can't find a good uh, finger bow uh, in in compounds anymore. They're all too short. Uh, uh, so I get that question a lot. If if you want to keep finger shooting with a compound, you almost have to go to a used bow, uh, one of the older huh. ones uh, that's at least forty inches axle to axle. Yeah, yeah. You were talking about rangefinders. Uh, you probably remember the old dial dial operated range finders where you brought two images together and if a cloud passed overhead the the calibration changed and uh, uh laser range finders uh, are uh, awesome uh, the laser range finders one of the uh, uh, most significant advances i think in modern bow hunting yeah i had a, I have a story for that i was last year i was grouse hunting and so it was really early in the morning, really foggy. And so I popped my range finder up and, and I, it wouldn't, it was too foggy to get a range on this grouse. I'm like, well, it's gotta be about 40 yards. So I'd shoot and I'm low and I'm like, well, that's, that's interesting. So I knock another arrow and it's a grouse. So it just sits there and shoot again and it's low. And I'm like, well, that just doesn't make any sense. And, uh, I'm sitting there trying to figure it out. I'm getting another arrow ready to go. And he kind of walks, walks over behind some brush. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. I wound up walking up there looking for my arrows and found out where he was sitting. And as I ranged it back to where I was by this tree, I could get a, a good range on that tree. And it was 71 yards. And I was like, well, that explains why I was shooting under him. <laughs> but you, you don't, you just don't realize how dependent you get on your equipment until something like that happens. In the old days, uh, I used to spend probably an hour a day uh, practicing range estimation by eye because I 
when I put sights on my old recurve bow, my old wing Thunderbird that I shot for several years, uh, I got dramatically uh, better on targets and game uh, if I knew the distance. So I wanted to know the distance. Yeah. Uh, back in those days, it was uh, uh, almost a sin with some folks to put sights on your recurve bow. But uh, my bottom line is I wanted to kill animals cleanly, and uh, it worked yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah, I remember years ago, our uh, we'd shoot the 3D course. A good friend of mine, Jens, who actually talked me into getting my my first compound, and we'd go to to 3D courses. And our range was you both get up there, and the first guy up would say, "Well, we both think it's about you know 52 yards." And then the first guy'd shoot it, and then he'd tell you, "Nope, it's 57." And so the second guy had a huge advantage as long as you had a buddy that was honest. So. That, that was how we used to do range on the 3D cores. Ranging, the old company that used to sell those dial-operated range finders, uh, they always pointed out a military study that showed that the average, what they called trained observer, was off about 25% on the distance on average. Yeah. Uh, and as you, you know as well as I do, uh, even even on flat ground, it's hard. But if you get in the hills and you're looking across a ravine or you're hunting yep. an animal you're not used to that's bigger or smaller, it can totally mess you up. Yeah, or uphill, downhill, and all of that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I've got a rangefinder binocular now uh, that gives me uh, an instant angle readout as well as uh, the distance. And, uh, uh, I mean... It takes a lot of guesswork out for sure. Yeah. And that's, has there been any shot, you know, speaking of uphill, downhill over a ravine, has there been any shot that's just kind of, that's that's one you just don't like or you just haven't had good luck with? You mean in general or on a yeah. specific animal in, just in, in general? Either one in general, or if there's one that kind of sticks out in your mind that you just love to have back. I don't, I don't, in general, I don't like the side hills that well because, uh, uh, if your bow's not uh, dead plumb, you're going to shoot to left or right on a side hill. Up and down, uh, if I know the angle, uh, I can pretty well figure that one out. Uh, but uh, the side hills could be a little tricky. You know, you, you, you might not hit exactly where you want to, even with even with a bubble on your uh, on your sight. Uh, in the heat of the action, you don't always look at that bubble. And, uh, yeah. So that's a problem. The, the the one shot that I can think of that uh, still bugs me to this day, but it wasn't my fault. Uh, there was a, a white-tailed deer they called the Space Monster in Alberta, Canada. And he always showed up in the winter at the haystack and dropped his antlers. And, and he was like a a, a a 260 deer when they wow. when they measured his biggest set of uh, sheds. And uh, they kept telling me about this deer, and the deer would go into uh, uh, a national park where, where he couldn't be hunted uh, during gun and bow season. Well, the year that I hunted uh, along Dash Dinosaur National Park, that deer was getting pretty old. He was probably uh, eight or nine years old. His antlers that he was dropping every year, like clockwork, weren't quite as big. They're still well over 200. Uh, and... Uh, I spotted him going across the field in, in legal territory one day, and I, I set up a blind with tumbleweeds along the, the fence, uh, just a couple hundred yards from the National Park. And uh, 
crouched down in there the next day, and I'll be darned if Harry didn't come right after daylight, uh, heading, heading for the safe zone. And he was kind of limping, and he obviously looked old and kind of arthritic, and he, and he had his, his brow tines were, were over 12 inches high, and he was just an awesome deer. And um, I drew my bow just as he jumped the fence, and um, he stopped, and I let go, and he turned into a into a yearling buck at that point, and he was probably 40 or 50 feet away from my arrow when it hit. It was like a 40, 45-yard shot. Wow. And uh, he ran down into the park, and uh, uh, a gun hunter got him later that year because he was downhill and needed the haystacks to, to keep up his uh, energy. And uh, I don't remember exactly, but his, his antlers were about 230. Wow. Uh, and and uh, I think the brow tines ended up being about 16 inches long. He, narrow but really tall deer. Wow. But I'll never forget that shot. I'll never forget that shot because it felt good, and I followed through, and the deer just wasn't there when the arrow hit. Wasn't, yeah. yeah, yeah, fast. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, you know how fast white-tailed deer are. I mean, yeah, uh, they're they're um, just coiled up all the time. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I saw a, a video years ago where they were talking about how a deer will just duck duck the shot, and they said, "Here's the deer." pre-shot they drew a line on the screen you know where its back was and, and a line mm -hmm. where its stomach was and they said here's the shot and the amount of time that it took that arrow to get there that that deer dropped well below where it its belly had been and then just took off like a shot it's oh, yeah they crouched to they crouched to load their leg muscles and then yep. there's no telling where they're going to go after that and uh, yeah i wrote a whole uh, long article uh, a blog for my uh website uh, a few months ago on that very subject and uh, i don't care how fast your arrow flies uh, uh, a white-tailed deer that hears your bow is going to beat you, you yeah know, you're going to have to compensate for that yeah so you know i i saw a video much it might be the same video but they were talking about a deer with his head up compared to its head down and if its head is up then it can drop quicker have you ever noticed anything like that chuck you know, it all happens so fast. I honestly haven't. Uh, uh, when I shoot, I'm falling through the shot and and uh, uh, trying to keep my sight on the on the spot on the animal where I'm shooting. So I I haven't noticed that, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, well, they were just talking maybe about if his head maybe if, maybe if his head's up, he's just already alert and more wired than when that's head his head is down. I don't know. Well, they were just talking about how the way the body goes to load up, you know, it doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to drop its head first. It can just drop down or, and you know, they went into all that, but I was just curious yeah. to know if you had ever experienced anything like that. So you're saying that the head up deer crouches better or worse than the head down deer? I don't even remember now. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't even uh, remember now because I remember thinking like, well, if a deer jumps the string, either way, it's gets faster than the arrow, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, no matter right. head up or down, if it decides to duck your arrow, it, it's going to beat your arrow. Um, so I remember right. just kind of writing it off, but um, just thinking, well, if it ducks, it ducks, you know, whether it's heads up or down before the shot. So I was just curious to know. I don't know. I, I know it seems like southern deer, white-tailed deer, jump the string worse than northern deer. And I don't know why that is. Maybe they have less body mass, and so they can move faster. But uh, uh, 
I've hunted South Texas uh, a number of times. I always, even at 20 yards, aim for the bottom line of the chest on a, on a Texas deer because uh, they always hear something when you let go. I don't, even if you're inside a blind, uh, a, a, a ground blind. And uh, if, if you aim for the center of the lungs, you know, you're going to get a high lung hit or, or heaven forbid, hit even higher. So that's, and, and that's something you do. What would you say? So you're aiming, what, six inches lower than, than where you're? Yeah, yeah. You know, the average white, white Texas whitetail has a chest cavity about uh, nine inches from top to bottom. So uh, I, I'm probably aimed, aiming four to five inches lower than, than center to the, where okay. I think the chest, chest cavity is. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and quite often it's a middle or a high lung hit. Yeah. Uh, with that kind of hold. Yeah. I, yeah saw, I, I saw something that said, no matter what, no matter what animal you're hunting, where you're hunting it at, just aim at the heart. Cause if it doesn't duck, you hit it in the heart. And if it does duck, you hit it in the lungs. So that's, that's, that's good advice. That's really good advice. Yes. Yeah, I've had some instances where, it, you know, you, you have a successful shot, but I've had, you know, issues where the, uh, you just couldn't find any external blood whatsoever because you hit them up a little bit high. And I think that cavity just fills and they just don't bleed externally like like you wish they would or you'd hope they would. So I started gravitating my shots down a little bit for that just to try to get a little bit better blood trail to, to aid in recovery. I agree. That's a great strategy. And uh there's a lot more non-vital t- tissue above the lungs than below the lungs. Uh, uh, so you, you just don't want to hit too high. You know, I hear guys say, oh, I double lunged him and he got away. Well, uh, my bet is uh, a good percentage of the time it's not a double lung. It's up in that no man's land under the spine or or, or through the bottom of the spine. Yeah. I, uh, first time I ever took my wife bow hunting with me, uh, we were in, in Arkansas. And so just like Texas, smaller deer, fast and wiry. And, and, uh, we were sitting in a ground blind and I had a doe come to like eight yards. And, uh, I was like, well, I'm going to shoot this, this deer, babe, get ready, you know? And, uh, and so I draw back and, and within eight yards, the deer still ducked my arrow, went right over her back. And I remember her thinking, like, she, she even said it. She's like, you missed. It was so close, and you missed. And I'm like, well, you know, that's just how it goes sometimes. <laughs> later that night, we, uh, later that night, we, I couldn't find my arrow anywhere. I, and I had a lot of knock on it, couldn't find it. It was Thanksgiving Day. And so after Thanksgiving dinner, I asked one of my cousins, I'm like, hey, you want to drive back out to, to me, Mom, and Papa's and look for my arrow with me? And he's like, yeah. I was like, it's dark. I've got a lot of knock. We'll see it. And sure enough, as soon as I come around the, the bend and you could see the whole field. I see the arrow floating in the pond, just knock up just that light and knock. And it was Thanksgiving. So it was freezing cold. And, uh, I was a broke college kid. So I'm like, I need all the arrows I can get. So I just got in my skivvies and swam out and grabbed my arrow and got, got back in the truck. But sure enough, within eight yards, that doe ducked my arrow. You know, that doesn't surprise me, Dylan. I used to live in the Bitterroot uh, Valley of Montana and, uh, uh, residents could get extra doe tags every year with a season that ran uh, all the way past uh, Christmas time. And uh, so I would go down, and there was a railroad track that, that uh, bordered a wildlife refuge. 
and and the deer would come out of the the fields early in the morning and cross the track into the safe zone. So I dug some pit blinds and would hunt does down there. And I'll never forget this doe that came across just after sunrise, and she turned broadside uh, at about as if I memory serves me right, about twenty five yards, and uh, had a perfect shot. I shot, shot her through both lungs. And uh, the arrow caught the back of the uh, shoulder blade on the far side. She ran off and dropped. And I went over there and I thought, something is really weird here. And the arrow was exiting the side that I aimed at. And that doe had swapped ends 180 degrees before my arrow got there. And I still caught her through both lungs and, wow. and dropped her. But uh, it happened so fast, I didn't even know what happened. It, 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 wow. the reflexes are just amazing huh that's 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 incredible yeah mm -hmm. hey i got you have to understand i've never been a real fast arrow guy and i was probably like my, my arrows were probably flying under 210 feet per second back then and i was shooting uh i think it was 2317 arrows at that point another uh oldie but goodie uh but slow and uh so that that helped her a little bit but that deer would have made some major moves even with a fast arrow. Mm -hmm. Didn't you know? sound like it helped her much. No, no, she was <laughs> she she was she was pretty good on the table later. Yeah, how that, Chuck? I don't yeah. know if I don't know if you heard, but uh, earlier in the year, Easton actually came on as a corporate partner of Pope and Youngs. So, uh, what heard, what Easton arrow are that. you running right now? What's your arrow setup right now? I'm shooting full metal jackets, uh, three hundred spines uh, with a I always shoot about 75 pounds. So uh, uh, last year I shot the Hoyt RX-4 with uh, those 300 spine full metal jackets, um, uh, G5 Striker V2 broadheads, and uh, uh, they work great. I like the aluminum carbon combination shafts mm -hmm. because uh, you get great camo on the outside. Uh, they're easy to pull out of the target. Uh, Easton can straighten them really well because of the aluminum. The aluminum takes a set, so uh, the, the carbon inside uh, uh, couldn't be straightened by itself. It's either straight or, or not, but uh, those arrows are just awesome. Very cool. I've actually never shot the full metal jackets. I don't don't know why, but um, just never shot them. I'll bet as a corporate, with them as a corporate sponsor, you could probably get your hands on some. <laughs> no, I'm shooting the... Uh... It just came out. It's the the Easton Axis four millimeter long range, and I've mm -hmm. been really impressed with that because I, I loved the Axis for a long time. Shot the Axis for probably five years, and then they came out with the four millimeter Axis, and I've just I've loved it. It's a it's a phenomenal mm -hmm. flying arrow. I'm shooting it on my recurve and my and my compound actually. What 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 do you think uh, makes the difference with that shaft? just a small diameter. I, I, mm -hmm. I've, been a, I've been a small diameter guy for a long time. And, and, you know, just that, that small diameter is not affected by wind like, like it normally is. And, and, uh, just flies really well, especially at long ranges, which is why it's called the long range. But yeah, you get out mm -hmm. to long ranges and, and that small diameter just doesn't get pushed around by wind. Like, like a, 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 a thicker walled, heavier diameter arrow does. That makes sense. Uh, I shoot the five millimeter uh, full metal jackets, and uh, I can tell the difference between those and the old uh, yeah uh, 2419s and 2317s that I once shot. Uh, 
it does make a difference when the breeze is blowing particularly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I shoot the axis and I'm I'm almost embarrassed to say why. It's because I when they first came out, they had that that wrap on the back. And uh, I thought, man, that is a cool looking arrow. So that's what I went to. And then I, I switched to them. Then they got rid of it. So, I, <laughs> so uh, the cosmetics went away, but you still I, like the arrow. I, you know, I stuck with it, but now I've got, uh, we got State Wraps as one of our partners. And so I'd, I called him up and he made me some some pretty pretty neat looking arrow wraps. So now I'm, I'm back to, to looking good too. Shameless. Oh, plug. good, good, yeah. Shameless yeah. plug. Yeah, yeah. shameless plug. Yeah, you might as well look. Might as well look good when you're out there uh, well, no. shooting straight, right? Hey, you, you know, yeah. Raps just sent us our new wraps with our new logos on them, and, and they're they cool, awesome looking. Yeah, awesome looking. That's the you, you know, Chuck. Not all of us have 200 animals in the book, so we've got to do everything we can to look cool. Yeah. <laughs> well. Uh, more power to you, buddy. Yeah, that's uh, you know, if, if I've got pretty looking arrows, maybe they won't look at how I shoot. <laughs> it's all good, right? It's yeah. all good. Yeah, after it draws more attention to the way you shoot because, like, I, those arrows, then they watch you shoot. You know, that that could be because I remember years ago, I went to a shotgun range and I showed up, I was in flip flops and shorts and had a rusty old Benelli shotgun. And and some guys had the pretty pretty ones out there with me and and uh, man I beat them bad on a sporting clays course and that's probably how I look at the archery range I show up with my pretty arrows and and these other guys are just beating the tar out of me on the course so there is justice in the world. Well, you're shooting a quality product though too, so yeah. uh, the potential is there, right? The, yeah, the, it, I just have to just have to realize that. Well, you're obviously a modest man. I've heard you're a pretty darn good shot. So, uh, yeah, everybody gets lucky sometimes. <laughs> so what? So so three hundred is the next number. Can we quote you on that? I think yeah, I you can quote me. I, I I think I, I think I'm on a podcast. Everybody's gonna know. So that's right. So yeah. what, what's what's Frank Noska think of three hundred? Have you asked him? No, but, uh, you know, Frank approached me at the archery trade show a few years ago, and uh, I don't think he'd mind, he'd mind me telling you this. Uh, he said, I, I'd never met him before, and, and he said, I think I've got you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I've got 119 Pope and Youngs, and uh, I think you've got 122, Chuck, and uh, I've got several pending, so I think I'm ahead of you. And I kind of grinned at him and, and, and said, you know, Frank, uh, there's only one problem with that. Uh, I haven't entered anything in 10 years. And uh, my old uh, uh, favorite Pope Young Major moved away, and I had found somebody else, uh, and it wasn't something I'd done right away. And I'm going to get around to it. Now that you mentioned that, I'm going to get around to it earlier rather than later. Yep. And uh, so I went out the next couple of weeks. Uh, I, I went to... Uh, uh, Ron Najalik here in, in Cody, a good friend of mine, uh, who's a major. And I said, I got to catch up here. So I entered, I think it was 49 animals. And, uh, Frank, Frank's been, been chasing me ever since. So. Oh yeah. I, I yeah. think, I think Frank told a version of that. We had him on, uh, we went live from panel with the podcast cause he was one of our panel measures. 
And uh, I think he told a version of that same story. So that's he's a, Frank. Uh, I don't know Frank well, but he seemed like a great guy and uh, more power to him. I just, he's a little younger than me, so he may catch me at some point, but I'm not going to make it easy on him. That's good. Don't, yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, what, Dylan, we may have to do that. We may have to have, you know, like, like every once in a while, just have a recap and have them both on. Yeah. I like it. So, yeah, yeah, we could we could do that. Uh, well, Frank, I don't think Frank's married yet. I heard he had a serious girlfriend now, so uh, that may slow him down a little bit. Uh, I, I I'm a very happily married guy, and uh, uh, so I don't uh, bow hunt quite as much as I once did when I was single and and lived like a coyote. Uh, but uh, I'm still hammering it a few months a year. Yeah, that's. I'll tell you what. I don't know if it'll slow Frank down. I, I mean, there, here's a guy moved to Alaska just so he'd be able to hunt, kind of like you. You know, you started bow hunting to hunt more. He moved to Alaska for more opportunities, and and you know, when you talk about his whole year, it's it's like a lot of us. He's he's all about hunting all year long. You know, it's it's people that make decisions in the off season to be able to, to do things during the season. And it's, well, he's like a kid in a candy store in Alaska. There are more hunting opportunities oh. up there than any place else. Uh, uh, you know, I fashion my, my whole life around that same basic concept, uh, write magazine articles and do other things eight months out of the year, uh, 80 hours a week sometimes. So I could disappear the other four months yeah. out of the year and yeah. then just hunt. Yeah, no, that's um, it's what? amazing. I think he's on his third uh, slam. He's done it twice, and he's on his third round of the twenty nine. Four animals away for the third round. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that's, that's that's an amazing accomplishment. I, I can't sure. even imagine what it would take to do that. I can't imagine what it would take to do that with a rifle, let alone do it with a bow. I yeah. mean. Well, the awesome thing, the awesome thing about the Super Slam is that uh, uh, you get such great variety in bow hunting experiences. Uh, uh, I mean, there's only a handful of animals uh, on our continent that could be reliably hunted out of a stand. So most of it's foot hunting, and the yeah. the, the, the variety of, of terrain and uh, uh, the variety of the animal habits uh, that's that's worthwhile right there. What, yeah. what's, been your, what's been your favorite animal to chase? My favorite animal, uh, Dylan, is elk. Uh, if I had to hunt one animal the rest of my life, it'd be elk. It'd be nice if I could get a, like five tags a year, but uh, yeah. uh, I mean, elk, elk are not the, they're not the spookiest animals, uh, but they're just awesomely big and they make all kinds of neat noise during the rut and uh uh, you can't beat an elk on the table after you get him. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just love the variety of antlers. You see an elk there, like all antlered animals, every set is a work of art and, and it's, it can't be duplicated. Uh, they're all different. Uh, uh, so I love elk. Jason, Jason asked me that, that loaded question the other day, if you could only hunt one animal the rest of your life. And I said, well, that question kind of sucks because, you know, I'm here in, in Kansas. So, really all I've got is whitetail. 
um, because I'm I'm not even in Western Kansas. I'm like, really, all I've got is whitetail. So if I say anything other than whitetail, I don't get to hunt a lot because I got to travel for it. I said, so I'm just going to say mammals. <laughs> I said, there you go. One thing the rest of my life would be mammals. Yeah. Well, there's not a variety animal in North America that isn't worthwhile for one reason or another. Uh, Absolutely. One of my all-time favorites is is uh, fair chase bison, uh, as I'm sure you know. And uh, I had the good fortune uh, last year to shoot the third biggest one ever entered in Pope and Young, and it's the Wyoming state record. And uh, it took me nine days of snow tracking in a wilderness area and uh, before I got a shot at that buffalo. I'd seen him before. Uh, it was six below zero. And... Wow. Uh, uh, when I shot him, and uh, there was nothing I've ever done that was more challenging than that hunt. Uh, so every critter's valuable for one reason or another. Yeah, we honored that bison last week at convention. Yep. Yes, you did. I wish I'd been there. We did. Yeah. And that's so. Elk would be would be your favorite. Is there is there one that's just kind of your nemesis that's just not quite worked out like you'd hoped? Squirrels. Squirrels are actually no, I, you know I I when I set my mind to going after a critter, I just keep after it until it happens. Uh, next to elk, I love big deer, and I don't care if it's white tail or mule deer or black tail. Um, I, I love I love big deer. There have been individual nemeses like the uh, uh, space monster white tail I was telling you about that I didn't right. get. I I tend to really remember the the critters that got away. Um, yeah. And the biggest Sitka deer I ever saw in my life, uh, I never did get a shot at. I had to leave, actually, to go on a caribou hunt with some of the folks at Easton back in the 90s. And I hunted that deer for three or four days and had to fly out to go on this other hunt. I'll never forget how that deer looked, because I think it was probably a new world record uh, Sitka deer. Wow. And I did manage to break the world record uh, back in the 80s on Sitka deer, and this deer was substantially bigger. Huh. So yeah, I remember the biggest biggest elk I've ever seen was not my former world record elk. Uh, I saw one in Montana that I think would beat that uh, 409 plus bull by a few inches. And he had 30 or 40 cows with him all the time. I never could get a shot. Wow. That's... Uh... Hey, Dylan, imagine when we're sitting here and we've got a 409 bull saying, yeah, I've seen them bigger. Yeah. Only one. Yeah. Only yeah. one. I, only one. Uh, those, those critters don't come around very often. No. I, I think I've only ever seen one elk that I think would go 400 inches. And when that one came across, I mean, he ran across after some cows and he, and he just ran out there and stood about 90 yards and just looked around and it was just an amazing experience. I mean, I can still see it. And you look at that thing and it's like, holy smokes, what does that thing eat? Mule deer? I mean, it was just, it was another <laughs> level that I just, I'd never seen anything like it. And that was actually in Northern California. Was it? Oh, it was. Know. Yeah. Up yeah. in that Modoc. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those those critters in California get uh, they're protected and some of them get really big. Yeah, yeah. It's sure. worse worse if you had to pick one place to hunt. Where would it be? Boy, one place to hunt. Uh, well, I'm kind of with Frank Nautnoska. I like Alaska. Okay. Uh, they, I, matter of fact, I'm leaving for Alaska uh, uh, in nine days. 
Uh, my two best hunting buddies, neither one of them can go with me. So I'm going up there a month by myself uh, to backpack for free. I'm sorry. Me and Jason are both free next month. Weird. We're both <laughs> yeah. free. Hey, con- conventions over, literally free. Yeah, yeah. Gre- Greta was telling my wife. Greta was telling me the other day. She said you wouldn't have any trouble finding somebody to go with. But, no, uh, you wouldn't. I, I only hunt with good friends that I that I have been around a lot. You know, That's why we uh, can't go, Jason. That's why we can't go. Not yet. Well, not, not yet. yet. We we can work on it. We yeah. can definitely work on it. The. Uh, uh, but but I'll be up there for I get three Sitka deer tags and a, and a and a couple of caribou tags and uh, uh, it's just an awesome awesome place to hunt. Second best I live in Wyoming, but I would say second best would be Montana. Okay, uh, but it's so hard to draw tags anymore. Um, I used to be able to hunt elk up there every year, and uh, it's it's like so far. It's been about one in four years that I'll draw an elk tag anymore. So uh, uh, I can't hang all my hopes on Montana anymore. Yeah. So, so you just need to rotate your friends with whoever has the the enough preference points. There you go. There you go. You know, There's I know a couple of guys who do that. And, uh, yeah. It works like, out. Uh, do, yeah. You t- do you have preference points in uh, Montana? They're, uh, Jason? No, not yet, but I will next year. <laughs> it's like those guys, Jason. I'm sure. I'm sure being a waterfowl guy, you know those guys. You never hear from them until it's duck season, and they text you and start calling you. Yeah, pal, because it's duck season now. Oh, uh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's that's a little bit easier to take people out when you're duck hunting because you can have, you know, two or three or or sometimes even four people with with really good opportunities and in a in a field or on the marsh. But that's a little. A little tougher to do when you're bow hunting. Yeah, yeah, especially if you go for a month and you're backpacking out of the same camp, and uh, uh, if, if you're not both really independent and 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 have personalities that match, it could get a little grim. Yeah, yeah. Heck, there's some people I wouldn't want to drive to the airport with, let alone spend a month with. Uh, yeah, we probably know some of the same folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got on the airport. I got on a plane. Uh, well, just two days ago, coming back from Mountain Archery Fest, and I find my seat, and this guy was like, hey, uh, would you mind trading seats? And I thought he meant with him. thought he meant he wanted an aisle seat. And I'm like, yeah, you know, no problem. And he said, yeah, okay, well, my wife's just right up there. Would you switch with her? And I'm like, man, if I have to fly with my wife, usually I'm looking for somebody to switch her seat so I don't have to sit by her. <laughs> <laughs> and he chuckled and said, yeah, well, we've been on vacation for a week, and she's not tired of me yet, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I hear you. You know, the Canada closures really messed things up as far as uh, as far as tag draws. I thought I'd draw the Montana elk tag this year. I didn't even get an archery-only art, uh, antelope tag in Montana. It's the first time in like 25 years. Huh. Uh, because I, and I think I I can say it's the Canada closure. Everybody's putting in for low 46, 48 states now. So yeah. I'm I'm super excited. I get to go here, gosh, just in a couple of weeks. I'm going to Wyoming for my first hunt there, and right. really excited about it. So, more Boone and Crockett, more Boone and I don't know about Pope and Young, but more Boone and Crockett antelope have been shot in Wyoming than any other state. Okay, you hear, you hear about Arizona and New Mexico, and they are a skosh bigger, but there's more uh, Boone and Crockett 
goats running around this state than any place. Well, I've been I've been watching every video and looking at every picture I can on how to field judge those things. And uh, buddy that that I went hunting with last year on an antelope hunt and he said all right for the first two days we're going to put the mittens on he says you can't you can't shoot anything two days because <laughs> he had me and, and he was right you know put the mittens on and then you know find the one you want and settle in on that and so i think that's going to be the hardest part of of this for me is to make sure that i i don't say oh yeah that's a good one and then you get him on the ground and say well okay he's not quite as big as i thought you know, I, uh, first, you know, what's going to happen. The biggest one will come in the first yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. Chuck and Chuck, you can probably speak better to this than even me, but, um, in my opinion, bears are one of the hardest things to, to fill judge. And on my first bear hunt, I, uh, I, just like Jason said, I was looking up how to, how to fill judge videos and pictures. And so this bear comes in and I shoot it and, uh, the guide comes back to pick me up and I'm like, dude, I shot a giant big, I thought it was a new world record. I'm like, it's a giant bear. We roll up on, he's like, that's a great 200 pound bear, man. <laughs> but I just, man, I just, I, of course I was still over the moon with it as my first bear, but, um, just incredibly hard to feel judge. They are, they're like, they're like pigs. They just get bigger in proportion. And if you don't have something to compare with, uh, Right. I mean, sure, you can look at the muscle mounds on the top of the head and get a get a little bit of an idea. And uh, uh, you know, you can tell by body language if it's a big board a lot of times. But the best thing is to have a mark on a tree, or or if he covers up the the bait barrel, you know, you got a big one. That's about yeah. all you can. Do. Yep. Yeah. See, now that's a problem in Oregon. We can't bait. So if he covers up the bait barrel, you got to let him go. Yeah. Yeah. California California didn't allow baiting either. And so uh, I used to help with a friend when I was in uh, college who had hounds. You could run them with hounds. They closed that season too, but uh, uh, you could not tell how big a bear was in a tree. Uh, mm. All you could do is look at the the, the footprints going to the tree, then you get a pretty good idea. Yeah. I, you know, I never got to hunt bears with hounds, but I got to do back in college, do some, we, we tracked them with hounds, treat them and then uh, darted them and collared them. And that was pretty, pretty neat experience. But sure. uh, yeah, it, it wasn't my favorite way to hunt, but uh, uh, I mean, hunting is hunting, and I, I had a friend who had a great pack of hounds, so we went out quite a bit and uh, uh, saw a lot of bears in the tree. I think I only shot two out of a tree over all those years, but uh, I saw quite a few in trees. Yeah. So, now, Chuck, one of the things that we do on this show with every guest is we ask... I'm excited for this one. ...the one question, and and that question is, when you're out on the mountain in the woods... What is the one item that you take with you, kind of a maybe a non-traditional item that that you have in your pack? The green beanie doesn't count. We can't say the green beanie. We all know that one. I can't. I can't say green beanie, huh? I, hey, Dylan, it's Chuck Adams, man. He can say anything he wants. Say anything you want. I can't say yeah. toilet paper because that's pretty standard. Um, boy, oh boy, uh, I, I, I hunt pretty bare bones uh i have very very few things i usually hunt with a fanny pack and uh uh you know i've got my got my knife and my survival gear and a little bit of uh uh 
surveyor's tape to mark uh, blood trails and things like that. Um, I don't think I carry anything that's that's really non-traditional. I, I cut it down to a bare, bare minimum because I don't like carrying that extra weight. Yeah. Um, and I, I and I'm not I'm kind of like my old friend Dwight Chu was uh, when I'm out there. If I put fuel in the furnace, that's all I care about. So I'm usually carrying uh, a trail mix, and and uh, uh, even if I'm out for four or five days bivouacking, uh, I've got a big bag of trail mix with me. But uh, trail mix, uh, it is. Yeah, I get maybe trail mix. I don't know. That's yeah. not that uncommon either. But uh, can we put uh, it down for trail mix and flagging tape? Yeah. I think yeah. that's the, I always have flagging tape with me, but that's, that hasn't been mentioned yet. So maybe that's a good one to, to now the ultimate the answer, the ultimate answer is the green beanie. Uh, the only reason I said you couldn't <sighs> say it is because everybody's already aware of that one. Everybody knows you have your green beanie. That's true. I always have that. Sometimes it's too hot and I'll take it off. But, uh, uh, when I shoot fingers, which I still enjoy doing, uh, I draw the bowstring too close to my forehead uh, to where I, uh, baseball cap. I have to turn it around backwards uh, to shoot if I do that. So uh, that's one reason I started wearing a stocking cap years ago. No interference with the bowstring. I'm a, I'm apparently haven't gotten to that level yet because <laughs> I, I I don't know if if my hat's touching I might even not notice it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Uh, you know one thing one thing I guess I could mention that until the rangefinder binoculars with uh, angle meters in them came out uh for for like 35 years i carried a clinometer with me uh an angle a, a palm sized real high quality angle meter that uh 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 use often used by timber cruisers to to judge the board feet in a tree uh by the height of, figure out the height of the tree and i worked out a, a fairly simple formula uh, mathematical formula. If I knew the distance and I knew the angle with that clinometer, uh, I could calculate in a few seconds uh, how much lower I needed to hold on like a downhill shot or an uphill shot. And uh, I only quit carrying that clinometer uh, three years ago when I found a rangefinder binocular that I really liked with the angle component inside. Yeah. And I don't know anybody else in the industry or outside the industry that ever carried a clinometer on their belt. So that's, that's the first time I've heard that. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say, all of these range finder uh, binoculars and separate range finders say they've got uh, a calculation for the good ones for uh, compensation uphill and downhill called an arc feature. But with a lot of bows, the arc feature doesn't work. You need to hold lower than normal because of the downward pressure of the arrow on the arrow rest at different angles. Uh, and, and the fact that the uh, uh, balance point of the arrow changes when you're aiming up or down, and that affects point of impact, it's different than a gun. And so if I go to that arc feature with my setups, I'm going to hit over the top of handles every time. So I, my my little formula works better for me. Well, clear with with two hundred in the book. Clearly, something's working for you, <laughs> or or everything's working for you. Well, I'm having fun. That's the that's the that's the important thing. That is. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, 
Chuck, it's it's been a, a pure privilege to have you on today and we appreciate everything you do in support of the club and and bow hunting and you know the true ambassador that you are to the sport so well thank you jason and uh it's been a pleasure uh talking to you and dylan uh, today and uh, uh let's do it again sometime let's let's do it and, I, and maybe now, with maybe maybe with frank noska let's uh, if, we can make that happen so yeah, that that He's one of the few. He's one of the few guys I think uh, uh, that I can think of that would just have a blast uh, doing it together. Oh yeah. yeah, he's he's a lot of fun and he's a good yeah. guy. So, but For sure. hey, hey, Dylan. After I go call my dad and tell him I just did a podcast with Chuck Adams, uh, then we'll have to schedule that Frank Noska yeah. episode. So, hey, Chuck. Thanks so much. Have a great day and. Uh, and look forward to, to celebrating that 300 with you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Jason. Uh, I'm going to be hammering away at it the next few years. Excellent.